Church family, go ahead and open your copy of God's Word to Leviticus chapter 14 this morning. We are going to cover Leviticus 13 and 14, but I did want to read just this one section towards the end of Leviticus 14, actually the end of Leviticus 14. You're looking at the amount of verses we're doing here this morning, you're thinking there's no way, right? We're going to make a way. The Lord's going to make a way. Let's do this. Leviticus 14, starting verse 54. This is the law of any leprous sore and scale for the leprosy of a garment and of a house, for a swelling and a scab and a bright spot, to teach when it is unclean and when it is clean. This is the law of leprosy. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, grass withers, flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's go to the Lord and thank Him for His word this morning. Gracious Father, we are honored, humbled, and full of joy to be in your presence this morning. We're amazed that though we used to be objects of wrath, at enmity with you, deserving to be separated from you for all eternity, that you sent your Son to claim us, to lay down his life for ours, the righteous for the unrighteous. You've granted us every spiritual blessing in him, and we have every reason to celebrate this morning. Yet, Father, we long for Christ to return to make all things new again. We long for shalom to be established from sea to sea, for all of creation to reflect your glory, to live in the presence of that glory for all eternity, separated from your enemies, from the consequences of sin. Father, I pray this morning as we hear your word that your people would be edified, that we might come to a deeper understanding of how truly great you are, that it might produce greater hope despite the trials and tribulations we face. So prepare our hearts this morning by your word, strengthen your people, that you might be honored and glorified in all things. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Okay, chapters 13 and 14. Just a reminder as we start, we are in Leviticus. So I want you to be confidently keeping as much that you can from the introduction of uh, this book in your mind as you start every Sunday morning, right? That, that though it is in the genre of law, it's also a narrative that this actually took place in time and space. God was now dwelling in the midst of his people and his palace tent and instructing them on how they were to live holy lives before him. These laws, remember, though we read them and think they may not have significance to us now, we we must understand they had great significance because they were applied to real people's lives. And so keep that ever before us as we consider the text today. What is the big idea of today's text? Well, both chapters 13 and 14, the big idea is quite simply the instructions for ritually defiling skin diseases and infestations, right? You're probably not going to be really hungry for lunch after this, I should tell you. No, I'm kidding. Uh, But more than that, I want us to see this morning what we actually come to in the text, which is a parable of sin, a lesson in God's sovereignty, and an expectation for healing. It's what we find here. We find not only instructions for ritually defiling skin diseases and infestations, but we see a parable of sin, a lesson in God's sovereignty, and an expectation for healing. 
In the passage itself, we'll dive into that now, we find the instructions for ritually defiling skin diseases and ritually defiling infestations. Uh, Actually, the word that's often translated leprosy in our text is the word saraha. And it's actually better translated as this, as richly defiling skin disease or richly defiling infestation. It's a better translation than leprosy or what is known as Hansen's disease today. Because because this word actually covers an entire gamut of skin diseases and infections. And so don't just think of leprosy here. You have to think broader than that. And what's even more important is to understand that this is a major impurity. That becomes clear as we consider the links to which the priests are to go in order to identify it and the consequences of those who contract it. And so let's look at this through three different ways. First, I want us to look at the basic identification process. What is the basic identification process as it's laid out to us in the scriptures? Uh, And the basic process laid out in chapter 13 is, is that anyone who thinks they might have a ritually defiling skin disease is brought before the priest for examination. Uh, Most likely, this would not have taken place in the tabernacle itself. The priest would have come out to meet the person. And and the initial examination would end in one of two ways. The person would be determined to be deemed unclean immediately, or it would be inconclusive. And that person would be a word I'm sure we all hate now, this side of 2020. That person would be quarantined. If they had to be quarantined, it would last seven days. And then a second examination takes place with a similar result. Either it's definitive and the person is unclean or another seven-day quarantine awaiting a third examination. Remember, three, especially in the Old Testament, three, seven, forty, these are all numbers that symbolize and signify thoroughness or completeness. So this is a complete and thorough examination to identify uncleanness. And at the end of the third examination, the person is either unclean or clean. Now, we do find in the text that if there was a a recurrence, even after the person had been found clean, they are immediately then designated as unclean. And that, that in a nutshell, is what we find in chapter 13, this, this basic process through which all of these different types of skin infestation or diseases are identified. And there are several different types mentioned. We'll have pictures on the screen. No, I'm kidding. No, uh, sorry. That's the last joke. All right. Basic swelling, rash discoloration. There's issues dealing with raw flesh, specifically issues with boils, balding. It's real. Spots, uh, discolorations, all, all of these are mentioned. And each of these, depending on the specific type, goes through a similar process to the one I just laid out. So that is the basic identification process. I wish I had not promised to not joke after mentioning balding, but that's okay. It's done now. Uh, now we go on to instructions for the unclean. So we have the basic identification process. Now what are the instructions? If you're deemed unclean, what do we What do we do? Well, in the case that one is determined to have a ritually defiling skin disease and therefore they are unclean, three things must happen. Immediately, a person must change their appearance. That is, they must put on torn clothing, they must let their hair hang loose and cover their lip or mustache. And and the second thing, after they've changed their appearance, is they must cry out publicly, unclean or impure, over and over again as they move through the camp towards the exit. And then the third thing is they must separate themselves from people. 
They would have to no longer dwell in the camps, but outside the camp. In fact, the NIV and the ESV say they must live alone. That's, that's not a really great translation. The, the Hebrew word is separate from the community. It literally means they must be apart from a larger group. It doesn't mean that they, they all have to live by themselves. In fact, they would most likely live with others who had a similar disease. And then in order to re-enter the camp, they would have to go through something like a purifying rite, similar to what we find in chapter 14, verses 46 and 47. Something as simple as they would be unclean until evening, then they would need to bathe, wash their clothes, and they would be able to re-enter the camp. And yet, we really don't want to minimize the hardship here, right? They, They were cast out, cut off, and had to dwell outside the camp. They would have continued, by the way, with Israel as Israel takes up camp and leaves Mount Sinai. But no longer were they afforded the protection of being inside the camp. Nor could they participate in the worship of their God in the tabernacle. Nor could they enjoy their fellowship in the community as they dwelt in the midst of God's covenant people. But again, this was not meant or purposed to increase their hardship. These, these laws were not a punishment for somebody who had a ritually defiling skin disease. We can't read it like that. Instead, it's meant to protect the covenant community. And and it would also, as we've seen time and time again, it's kind of the theme of the book, it would emphasize God's holiness. The defilement could not stay in the presence of God. It couldn't even be in the camp, let alone in the tabernacle. It must be removed. So that, in regards to ritually defiling skin disease, are the instructions that are given But then we also read in chapter 13 specifically that there are instructions in identifying ritually defiling infestations on garments. This isn't just clothes, by the way. Lots of things then were made out of garments and leather. For instance, tents or or items that were used to carry liquids. And and the instructions laid out, they're very similar to the ones we find for skin diseases. The thing is to be shown to the priest. He examines it. It goes into quarantine. If it fades, great. Great. If it spreads, that's a problem. And in this instance, if it spreads, it's not thrown out of the camp, it's burned. And if it does fade, then the patch that had it was cut out and replaced. And and even in this instance, we're prone to miss the significance of this. Listen, this may not mean a whole lot for us. What's the importance of this? Because we all have dressers full of clothes, right? We, We have bags in the back of our cars probably right even now to take to Goodwill, But this is not the case with Israel. Their articles of clothing were extremely valuable. Each garment would have been handmade and would have represented a significant time and effort. This would be a significant loss. So finally, in chapter 14, we find instructions specifically regarding the houses that will be inhabited when they get to Israel. Right? So so you can't just burn the house, right? Right? You've got to handle that a little bit differently. Here's instructions for that. Again, it's very similar. You tell the priest. He must examine it. He, he checks the spot in the house. Again, if he sees it, then the house is quarantined. It's locked up for seven days. It's, it's not actually locked up. We actually read later that someone could enter it. But if they do, guess what? They're unclean. So so the house is to have the part of infestation removed, the stones and plaster scraped away. All of that is taken outside the city because... Well, now we're in Israel, right? He's actually giving them laws for when they're going to be in Israel in the future. And they have to be thrown into an unclean place. It needs to be separated. 
Okay, that's all the instructions. All right, those are all the general instructions in regards to the house. If it returns, continues, or spreads, eventually the entire house would be torn down and removed. Now, actually, it's worth noting that as we tend to maybe underemphasize the importance of losing garments, we're probably tempted to overemphasize the losing of a house. Don't think here, a $300,000 house on you know, six acres. or, or these, these homes, though valuable, they're important. They're not quite that valuable. What they were made from was actually pretty readily available, and the community would have chipped in to rebuild the home. So it wasn't quite the same loss we would experience if our home was taken away. All right, that's it. That, those are the instructions on what to do if you are defiled, if you have a ritually defiling skin disease, if you're considered unclean. That's what we find in Leviticus chapter 13 and 14 in regards to those instructions and how to address them. What we find in chapter 14 is finally the process of purification. How do we get purified? Right, so we've instructed, we're unclean, we've got this thing. Now what's the purification process? Step one. The priest must go outside the camp because the unclean person can't come in the camp. Once he goes outside the camp, he determines if the person has been cured. And then he says to go gather some things. He says, we need two birds, some cedar wood, scarlet yarn, and hyssop. Right? They're they're gathered up, and, and one of the two birds is killed, and the blood is mixed with the water. Remember, water and blood are two of the most powerful cleaning agents in all of Israel. They're mixed together, giving them even more potency. And then the remaining items, the other bird, the cedar wood, the the scarlet yarn, and the hyssop are, are dipped into the water and blood mixture. And then they're sprinkled on the person who has been cured, cleansing them. The priest would then announce the person as clean and release the bird covered with the impurity into the field. The unclean individual would then shave, wash his clothes, and bathe. And just imagine here, like get yourself inside of this, right? Maybe it's been a year or 18 months since you've been allowed to come back into the camp of Israel. It's not hard to to picture or imagine the mixture of excitement with maybe just a little bit of fear and trepidation, maybe even shame. But here's the person coming back into the camp. The person is clean enough to come into the camp, but they're not quite clean enough yet to go into their tent. So so most likely, there there would be this temporary small structure that would have been built for them to live in the meantime. That's all step one. Step two then takes place, which is they must wait seven more days. Seven days passes by, and the the person then repeats the step of shaving, which, by the way, includes the eyebrows, removing every vestiges of impurity that once littered their skin. They washed, their clothes are washed, and tomorrow, tomorrow they go to the tabernacle. Seven days has passed. They've they've been in, but not quite in. And now the night comes. They shave, they bathe, they they put on their clothes, they, they wash themselves, they lay out their clothes for tomorrow, they lay down and know tomorrow we will be in the presence of God, worshiping with God's people once again. What a joyous celebration that would be. I mean... No expenses spared with this reconciliation. There's a a guilt offering with a log of oil, a purification offering, a burnt offering with a grain offering. All the bases are covered. An extravagant, expansive celebration takes place. This is is also a purification rite, by the way. The person now is moving from clean to cleaner, but still needs to be all the way clean. So the sacrifices are made. And and don't miss how, how costly this is. Three lambs, all one year old, all males. Three tenths of an ephah, a log of oil. It's costly. 
But at the end of that sacrifice, he's finally in the presence of God, standing before the tent of meeting, and he hears those words that he's longed to hear for who knows how long. He shall be clean. And he's fully integrated back into the covenant community. The only thing that we haven't covered in chapters 13 and 14, I'll mention briefly, are the, just the provision for the poor that follows this, as, as God is always faithful to do providing a means for those who could not afford the regular sacrifice and yet still have the same need. So that's it. It's two chapters of Leviticus. We just covered chapters 13 and 14. Ready to go home? Don't answer that. All right, obviously there's more to the text here than just these instructions, Right? As I said at the beginning, we see a parable of sin, a lesson in sovereignty, and an expectation of healing. And, and look, the parable of sin is it's not something we have to go looking for, is it? Right? Here we see the parable of sin. We're, here's the reason we're prone to miss this. It's because we think differently than the Israelites. We are rational thinkers. We think in instrumental terms. Like, we think, well, what caused this? What was this disease exactly? What, why did they do those ritual purification rites? You know, it must have really been from keeping those skin infections from spreading. This is how our minds work. But in ancient Israel, they think in analogical terms. They, they looked for relationships between circumstances and what they know about their God. They, they would often think, well, this is like that and that is like this. And you know what? This whole ritually defiling skin disease, it's a lot like sin. In general, an Israelite would not have missed that this whole ritual state was meant to reflect the moral state. One's holy standing before God. And in the case of the ritually defiling skin diseases, we learn some really important lessons from sin. We're going to get through your outline now. Let's go through this. This is maybe pretty quick, so listen fast, okay? Sin like a ritually defiling skin disease, is seriously defiling. (laughs) Like, we've seen that, but I want to emphasize it. It's seriously defiling. Just think about it. There are times where we sin and we feel dirty. We feel ill. Look, it's not unusual for people after committing major serious crimes to actually feel an overwhelming urge to literally clean themselves. Sin is defiling. And then sin, like ritually defiling skin disease, is also progressive. It is. Listen, most people probably wouldn't have waken up and covered in a rash from head to toe. Right? And an Israelite one day might have woken up, stretched out, looked over, found a spot. Well, that wasn't there yesterday. Next day, that spot becomes a little bit bigger, redder, starting to ooze a little bit. That might be a problem. Friends, sin is a lot like that, isn't it? Everyone knows the little white lie that turns into a bigger lie in order to protect the initial lie. That web just keeps on growing. So many other examples of that, but sin is progressive. It starts in subtle, small ways, often ending in disastrous choices that separate us from God and those who we love. So sin, like a ritually defined skin disease, is... Seriously defiling, it's progressive, but sin, like a ritually defiling skin disease, is also destructive. It is. Sin destroys lives. Sin destroys relationships. It destroys us. Actually, at the root of it, sin makes us less human. 
It, it actually removes slowly but surely our image-bearing aspect. It makes us less like what we are supposed to be. It destroys our humanity. So, sin is seriously defiling, it's progressive, it's destructive, but sin, like a richly defiling skin disease, also separates us from God. Picture's clear here, isn't it? Now, not literally separated from God, not cut off as one who has committed open rebellion, yet removed from the covenant community. There was separation, and certainly in sin, there is a cutting off from God. It separates us from the joy in life we experience in the presence of God. Sin, like a richly filing skin disease, also tempts us to hide. It's seriously defiling, it's progressive, it's destructive, it separates us from God, but it also tempts us to hide. I, I thought a lot about this. I mean, look, part of this is speculation, certainly. But wouldn't you, if you were an Israelite, and maybe you noticed a little spot on your upper arm, be tempted to say, I think I'm just going to wait this out a while. Right? Yeah, if it spreads, maybe, but just make sure no one's around when I'm bathing, right? Is God really serious with that whole go outside the camp thing? It seems a little over the top. It would have been very tempting to hide it. How much more with our sin? Is it not tempting to hide your sin? It's hard enough to take it before God, let alone bring it before the person you're sinning against or confess it before your brothers and sisters. Now, in in order to understand the last analogy, it's necessary to understand and hear this. Nowhere in Scripture do we find any remedy for ritually defiling skin disease or infestation. There's 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 no vaccine or antidote, right? There's how to identify it. There's what to do when someone is cured. But there is nothing prescribed for how to deal with it. It's just wait outside. Not take two of these and call me in the morning. Here's a salve you can use. There's no solution of any kind. See, Israel understood that God alone healed the person and made them whole. The priest could identify, direct, and purify at the end, but the priest could not do anything to make that person well. Richly defiling skin diseases serve to remind the people that it is God who heals. Not only from skin disease, but from sin. Richly defiling skin diseases serve as a reminder that salvation belongs to the Lord. That salvation belongs to the Lord. Okay, that's our first lesson. That's a parable of sin. We also have a lesson in sovereignty. We just talked about God is sovereign in salvation, certainly. But, but more than that, in our text today, we actually see that God is sovereign, Period. God is sovereign over all things, including these ritually defiling skin diseases and infestations. I was really amazed this week when I read this. And I wonder, I know I had conversations with a couple of you who got the reading this week who also read this and enjoyed your thoughts on that. But I want you to look with me at Leviticus chapter 14, verses 33 through 34. I just jaw dropped when I read this this week. Are you ready for it? You're not ready. Get ready. Thank you. And the Lord... Spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When you have come into the land of Canaan, which I give you as a possession, and I put the leprous plague in a house in the land of your possession. What? Like, 
I, I get the, when you come into the land of Canaan, which I gave you, like, a, of course, God wants to give us good things. I like that. But then he goes and says, when I put, God speaking, I put the leprous plague in a house of your possession. See what's happening here? The Lord is actually taking responsibility for putting the leprous disease into the home. This is what you're going to do when I put this in a home. Do you think the disease that resulted in a person being ostracized and separated from their covenant community was put on them by somebody or something else other than the Lord? No. How do you think the ritually defiling infestations got on the garments? Well, I know. Here, here's what we think, right? Well, here's what happened scientifically. Mold spores in the air. It was a very moist climate during the winter months, yada, yada. I get all that. But the Lord is saying, when I put the ritually defiling infestation in the house or on a garment or on a person's skin, this is how you will address it. And look, there are plenty of examples that, that prove that this is the case, right? Moses' chosen servant experienced leprosy by the hand of the Lord. Moses' sister, Miriam, in Numbers 12, was covered from hand to foot in leprosy. Why? Because the Lord struck her with a seriously ritually defiling skin disease. King Azariah in 2 Chronicles chapter 26, verse 22, that's just the name of a few. But by putting this here, the Lord was not trying to shock the Israelites. Listen, the Israelites in the context would not have heard this and be like, what? Did you guys hear that? They understood this. We don't think like this at all, though. Like, if we're honest, we'll confess that for most of us, this is a novel idea. So what I want you to do is I want you to take out your hammer, and we're going to knock down some walls and make a bigger box for God. The questions that surface in our mind is this. You mean to tell me that the God who loves me would allow me to suffer? Yep. That's exactly what I'm saying. That's what the text says. You mean, Pastor Cody, that more than just allowing it, the God who wants nothing more for me than to, to be happy would actually cause my suffering? Yep. That's exactly what I'm saying. Wait, are you telling me that beyond just withholding that big house that I've been asking for for a long, long time, beyond just taking a little too long to bring that husband I ordered about six months ago, that God might actually take my clothing, my shelter, my health? Yeah. It, look, it, it may seem like such a simple statement, but that's exactly what the text says. Just by putting that ritually defiling infestation in their home, he was taking their home. It wasn't as simple as, as, as putting ritually defiling infestation in their garment. He was taking their garment away. But why? Why would the God who loves me so much and wants nothing more than for me to do, be happy do such a thing? Why would he allow it, let alone cause it? Well, I'll tell you why. First, because God is not primarily concerned about your happiness. Remember our conversation about shalom two weeks ago? That's God's goal. Yes, all of God's people will be abundantly, unimaginably, eternally joyous, happy, fulfilled when shalom is accomplished. But listen, God's primary concern is for His own glory. It's bigger than you in your happiness. 
I, I get it. Like our, our, our minds are prone to think, well, isn't that a little self-centered of God? I mean, I don't, I don't know if I can serve a God like that. Is, is God a little egotistical and full of himself to demand his own glory even over my own happiness? Catch this, please. You need to hear this. God cannot, cannot share his glory with another. He cannot demand anything less than he be glorified. By his very nature, he must demand glory. He's the only one who possesses glory in and of himself. His glory is not dependent upon another. To allow his creatures to attribute glory to something or someone else, it it would be similar to allowing our kids to go outside and pick up a pebble and be like, thank you, pebble, so much for taking care of me. Thank you for feeding me and buying me lunch yesterday and putting a roof over my head and tucking me in every night. Would it be a loving thing, a good thing to sit by and watch our kids spend the rest of their life loving this pebble, believing it is the best thing that ever existed? No, it's utter foolishness. And so is this the idea that God could settle for anything less than for his creatures to honor and glorify him? It's absolutely ridiculous. And hear me, it's not a matter of God needing our praise or needing to be glorified. He is the only self-sustaining, independent being. He does not need to be worshipped. The reality is, though, church, is that we need to worship Him. We need it. When we do not worship God, we become less than human. In fact, so much of our suffering is actually brought on upon ourselves by our rejection of the only God who is life and joy. We need to worship God. The kindest thing in the world that the Lord could do is to make us worship Him. To turn from God is to embrace death. And so here's what we must realize. Suffering is often the means... By which God brings himself honor and glory in a sin-stained world. In a world where shalom has been utterly shattered. It is often through suffering that God is honored and glorified. In fact, turn with me to John chapter 9. I sent this text out this week as well. I hope you read it and are familiar with it, but it's mesmerizing. We read in John 9 verses 1 through 3 these words. Now... As Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. See, the disciples wanted to know, Whose personal, specific sin caused this? And you know what's funny? We wouldn't even ask Jesus that. We find that silly, of course. Right? It's not anybody's specific sin. No. We would ask Jesus, Jesus, what's your diagnosis for this? What illness does he have that caused this? Did his his mom not take enough multivitamins? What What is the breakdown here in the natural order of things that brought about this terrible event? Jesus instead answers, as hard as this is to understand, this has nothing to do with personal specific sin or natural causes even. It has everything to do with the glory of God. 
And listen, I get it. This is, this is heavy. I should have warned you this is heavy. It's heavy. But if we're wrestling with this at all, I just want you to pause and think of the greatest display of glory ever known to mankind and how it was displayed through the greatest experiences of suffering ever. I'm talking about the cross. All other suffering must be seen in light of the suffering of Jesus Christ on the cross of Golgotha. All other suffering pales in comparison, and nothing has brought God more glory than that glorious act. This was not accidental. The cross was God-ordained suffering, the same God who put richly defiling infestations in the houses and the clothes of the Israelites, the same God who put richly defiling skin diseases on the Israelites, is the same God who became a man in order to put on himself the sin and suffering of the entire world. Our experience, our God has experienced suffering that we have never known, no matter how bad our situation is. So that's one answer to the why question, but there's, there's more to the why question. Certainly God's primary concern is for his own glory, but it's, it's not only for the glory of God. Our suffering is also for the sanctification of God's people. It's for our sanctification that we suffer. Remember, those who were struck with ritually defiling skin diseases were, were cut off. But as I mentioned... They were not cut off from God. They were separated from the covenant community. They were still able to pray. They were still able to worship their God. They were still able to seek the face of their God. Not completely indifferent than some of our dear elderly saints who are homebound and unable to make it to church anymore. Real people that are no longer able to gather with the saints to gather around the Lord's table. But they still seek the face of their God. If you're listening, Miss Helen, I love you to pieces. So so also with an Israelite, with a richly defiling skin disease, could have been sanctified through the process, acknowledging their weakness and frailty, having that exposed in an obvious, tangible way, examining their lives for sin and confessing that sin, growing in dependence on God, learning to worship God in the midst of their trials and tribulations, learning to lament. In fact, when you read the Psalms, the Psalms are are full of lament, crying out to God. What a beautiful act of worship, learning to long for a healing that is more than skin deep. Learning to trust that the Lord has His ways, learning to praise Him with gratitude and, and worship when that healing finally comes. The ultimate lesson is that God is sovereign, even in our suffering. His primary concern is for His own glory, but it's also for our sanctification. And then really the take home point is is this. There's purpose in every ounce of our suffering. There's glorious purpose in every ounce of our suffering. Do you hear me, Christian? It may seem so trivial at the moment, or it may seem to have absolutely nothing to do with your walk with Christ, yet there is significance and purpose in your suffering. The Lord is not checked out when you have a headache. The Lord has not left the stage when we lose loved ones. The Lord is not unaware that you are struggling. He is in it, over it, and behind it. He is sovereign. There's one more thing I want to take home from this. Especially in light of the absence of any remedy for this richly defiling skin disease or infestation. It had to create, had to create an expectation of healing. Had to. Listen, I'll I'll be honest, this is not in the text. But it's glaring that it's missing from the text. 
Here this huge issue is presented to the people of Israel and there's no remedy except for hope in the Lord. There's no remedy except for a a longing for a deep and permanent healing that would more than just restore them to the camp of Israel. It would remove the threat. No longer lying in bed thinking, you know what, I heard the guy three doors down had a ritually defiling skin disease. Should we be concerned? I don't know. Maybe. The healing deeper than just skin deep. A, a longing for the true and eternal rest of the promised land. Merely symbolized here. See, the reality is, church family, that we're on the other side of the cross. We have actually experienced and celebrate that very healing We actually have the words written in Galatians chapter 4, right? The the fullness of time had come. God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Why? To redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. Children, a, a parent does not cast his kids out when they get sick. This is a beautiful picture. Israel did not experience the relationship we have. You don't take your kids and put them out in the barn because they're sick. Those inside and outside the camp have been redeemed. The types and shadows have given way to the true high priest of the house of God. So consider this, please. If you've read the chapter, the priest in ancient Israel identified ritually defiling skin diseases and separated the people from the covenant community. That was their job. But what did Christ do? Jesus Christ identified with richly defiled people to bring them into the covenant community. Listen, I don't don't have to make any of this up. It's right there. The contrast could not be clearer. The priest's job was to judge the skin blemishes, to find out if they are richly defiling. If it showed, they were pronounced unclean. Jesus Christ actually took on our judgment and pronounced us clean. The priests were, were gatekeepers. It was one of their main roles. They would go outside the city as a gatekeeper to say, sorry, I I know it looks better, but it's a ritually defiling skin disease. Keep waiting. They served as gatekeepers in order to decide whether an impure person could be purified and enter the city. It was their job to keep the impure out. But friends, Jesus went outside the city not to become the gatekeeper, but to become the gate. The gate through which the impure gain access to their heavenly Father. Jesus does not keep the impure out, Jesus made a way for the impure to come in. To enter into the presence of God. To come before His throne of grace. That's where we are. The reality is, friends, that the saints in Israel long to see our day. The lament psalms are filled with how long, O Lord. It's a a constant recurring theme over and over. How long, O Lord. They long to be healed of their ritual impurities and be brought into a right relationship with God. That is our reality, Christian. We live in that now. Praise God, Son, and Holy Spirit. All right, I'll bring this to a close. Conclusion. Because here's the reality. The reality is is much has changed. But much is still the same. Much has changed and much has stayed the same. We, We have been made whole in Christ. Nothing can separate us from the temple. We've become the temple. The Holy Spirit actually dwelling in us. We have experienced a deep and significant healing. We no longer fear becoming impure due to physical ailments or anything else. Much has changed, but much has stayed the same. God is still sovereign. 
He is still at work in your situation. He's still behind your circumstance. He is not unaware. We still suffer. We've experienced healing, but we still suffer. And our suffering still has the potential to bring God glory and to work towards our sanctification. That hasn't changed. The reality is, we still cry out. Just like the saints of old, we cry out, How long, O Lord? Come, Lord Jesus. If I could get the deacons to walk on down as we prepare to prayer for the Lord's Supper, let's say a word of prayer together. Gracious Father, we love you and thank you that you are sovereign. We confess that we are finite. Father, we often suffer from short-sighted vision. Forgive us. I pray you would grow our faith in you. Pray that you would grow our confidence that you are at work in all things. That we might suffer and be sanctified in a way that brings you honor and glory. We pray for the many this morning who may be suffering. Lord, would you bring them that comfort by which they find greater reason to trust in your son, Jesus Christ. Greater faith to live for him. Greater desire to proclaim his gospel. Father, would you be with us now as we participate in the Lord's Supper? Would you grant us grace, unite us to Christ? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Church families, we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper. As you know, primarily this is for our local church body, those who have covenanted together with us via membership. Um, But if you know yourself to be a Christian, you're certainly welcome to partake. This is an opportunity for us to identify with Christ, to remind ourselves of the suffering that he endured, and to understand that the call of the Christian is a call. It's a call to live life for his glory, which may include and often will include our suffering. But as we're reminded about what the body represents and what the blood represents, friends, if the Lord were to demand that you suffer for him for the rest of your life here, he has every right to because of what he's given to you in the cross. You must understand that. As we celebrate that together, may our hearts be aligned, may we worship him in spirit and truth. Let's participate now in a moment of silence as we hand out the elements.